This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Alison Lachey. And this edition is our 40th podcast, although we look much younger. Anyway, we'll be focusing this time on IFAD's Indigenous Peoples Forum, which is coming up in February with a theme of climate leadership and community-based solutions. Indigenous peoples are a necessary group in the fight against climate change, and yet they are critically underrepresented. In this episode, we travel around the world to talk to chefs, activists and experts about the issues most important to their communities. We chat with EFAD's very own Indigenous Peoples Specialist, Ilaria Fermian. And we also have a conversation with an Indigenous expert on free prior and informed consent. We learn about Indigenous food systems from South Africa to the US, and we take a stop in South America to talk to a leader and activist who's fighting for land rights. Later on in this episode, we hear from our Goodwill Ambassador, Sabrina Elba, who has an important message for us, adapt or starve. And we finish off this episode with a new segment in our Bangladesh Climate Change series. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast at ifad.org. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lachi and with me is Brian Thompson. Music is an intrinsic part of indigenous culture. It's used to tell stories, to express joy and celebration, to mourn. And each song reveals a little bit more about a culture. Before we jump into the rest of the episode, we're featuring a song that does just that. Created by Sawa Sudan for Development and Humanitarian Aid as part of one of their climate projects, the song is called Green Future for New Generation and is performed by the popular Sudanese band Egid El Galad. Green Future for New Generation by Dejalad. The idea by Khalda Abouzeh, the writer of the song by Abdulhab Al Halawi, and the song composer Sharif Sharhabil. The song is one of the activities of the project of Sudan Round Trees Initiative for Low Carbon Emissions, which implemented by South Sudan for Development and Humanitarian Aid, targeted indigenous people and local communities. Yeah. 
The song produced by Iqdaytalal musical group Popular Sudanese Music. Their musical composition called for giving voice to the neglected, disadvantaged, and those who are left behind. The main goal of the song is called for the conservation and protection of the forest for green future for new generation through sustainable use. Thank you to Kalda Abu Zaid from Sawa for that contribution. You can find out more at sawa-sudan.org. Up next, we take a closer look at what's happening on the EFAT side of things with our indigenous people's expert, Ilaria. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson here in the studio with Alison Lecce. Indigenous peoples play a crucial role in the conversation and management of natural resources. Despite this, their right to land and their own way of life is at stake. Indigenous peoples make up nearly 21% of extreme poor in rural areas, and they are more than two times as likely to be in extreme poverty compared to non-Indigenous counterparts. I sat down with specialist Laria Fermian to learn more about what EFAD is doing to address these issues and protect these communities. Well, indigenous peoples are experiencing discrimination, exclusion, and cultural disintegration. And globally, in rural areas, they represent 20.8% of the extreme poor, and they are more than twice as likely to be in extreme poverty compared to their non-indigenous counterparts. They also face food insecurity and malnutrition. And despite the fact that their rights to land, the territory and the resources are recognized by the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, they lack recognition of their collective rights. And this makes them more vulnerable to climate change, environmental degradation and biodiversity loss. But in addition, they experience increasing challenges in the defense of these rights. And when they voice opposition to extractive industries in their territories, indigenous peoples' rights defenders are killed. And approximately a third of the 350 or more human rights defenders killed in 2021 were indigenous leaders. One of EFAD's stock take reports from 2021 found that indigenous peoples were targeted in 62% of agroecology-related projects. How is your team planning to increase this targeting in the future? Well, uh, IFAD is now updating uh, its uh, policy on engagement with indigenous peoples. The new policy will be brought to the executive board uh, in December. And uh, the policy has a time span of 10 years uh, and builds uh, on the... Um, Basically, already for the 12th replenishment of IFAD resources, IFAD has committed to have 
at least uh, 10 projects that have indigenous peoples as a priority target group, but the policy aims at increasing and doubling this number of projects across the US. Um, so this is definitely the idea of the policy is to make uh, this increased target a commitment of IFAD across the next uh, replenishment periods. And the new policy is, of course, an instrument uh, to allow for this to happen. Uh, the policy is based on a number of principles of, of engagement uh, that are the same as in the past policy, plus one which relates to food um, uh, sovereignty and uh, food and nutrition security. And uh, um, on Beyond the, the um, principles of engagement, uh, there are also a set of actions that are identified, both in terms of uh, country programs, uh, uh, knowledge management, uh, climate finance. So these, these are the instruments that should help uh, for this targeting to increase. The sixth cycle of the Indigenous Peoples Assistance Facility started a few months ago, I believe. Yeah, was launched. The call was launched on the 9th of August and closed end of September. Can you just tell me a bit about what this exactly is? Yes, so that's. A, I mean, it's a funding instrument that indigenous peoples communities can use to find solutions to the challenges they face. Each cycle at it thematic focus, so this one is again on the climate biodiversity, uh, but the, the overall um, approach of the facility is really to strengthen uh, indigenous people's communities and their organizations uh, and, um, and foster self-driven development. Um, so the EPAF is, a, is an instrument to support uh, projects that are designed and that are implemented by indigenous people's communities themselves. There are three regional organizations that support smaller organizations within the three regions, but um, the, the key aspect of IFPAF is really that uh, the project builds on indigenous people's culture, identity, their knowledge and the resources they have. Um, so in the end, IPAF is an instrument to implement uh, IFAD's policy of engagement. And so do you, you get like proposals for it? Yes. Okay. We, actually, this year we, are, we, we just closed the call, so I, I don't have information yet on mm -hmm. the content of the proposals, but in terms of number, we got something like uh, 660 proposals, oh, wow. which is huge, but the, the funding we have, which is, uh, again, thanks to the SIDA um, Development Agency, uh, we are able to fund probably 30 to 35 of this project. So even if not all of the 660 proposals are eligible, let's say that even only a portion of those is still we are very short yeah. of funds and we are actually looking into additional funding. Mm -hmm both internally through the IFAD grant program or with external donors to, to support all the proposals we have. Because these are, I mean, the, the beauty of IPAF is that they are really demand-driven proposals. And now I have to ask, are there any specific projects that are happening or that are coming up that you are particularly like excited about or passionate about? Maybe, I mean, there, there is one, um, one Activity that uh, we are implementing uh, within the team, and which is supported by SIDA, uh, a Swedish uh, international development agency. Mm -hmm. And um, 
which is uh, basically we are supporting uh, uh, the, the implementation of free prior informed consent in a set of projects that are IFAD project, but where there is climate finance blended, so GCF, GEF. And uh, this is a very interesting uh, process that is happening in the sense that the most advanced case is Belize, where we had assigned uh, um, assigned FPIC uh, already happened. Uh, we, and the, the, the most exciting part of this is that uh, we have indigenous experts joining the IFAD mission and really dealing with this, uh, this part of consultations, helping organizing the consultation with indigenous communities and uh, preparing the, the indigenous people's plan and the plan for FPIC. And, um, it's, we are already collecting lessons from that, including the fact that it's fundamental to have this consultation with indigenous peoples happening at the earliest stage possible, so that really their vision is integrated in, in the very beginning of the design stage. Thanks to Ilaria Fermian for those comments. We'll return to Ilaria later in this episode to get a sneak peek of the forum in February. Up next, we sit down with an indigenous leader and expert from Kenya who tells us about self-determined development. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lachi here with Brian Thompson. One of the most important aspects of working with indigenous communities is ensuring that they have a voice in the projects that will directly affect them. While many organizations have guidelines to support consent in their work with indigenous communities, IFAD is taking it a step further. It's the first international financial institution to adopt free, prior and informed consent as a criteria for project approval. This consent ensures that Indigenous peoples are active agents in project development and implementation. Kimaren Ole Riamit is part of the Maasai pastoralist community in southern Kenya. He's also the team leader of the organization Indigenous Livelihoods Enhancement Partners, which focuses on self-determination in development projects. Kimaren joined us all the way from the field where he's currently working on an FPIC project to tell us a bit about the importance of this consent in development. Uh, my understanding, my appreciation of free plan informed consent is that in engaging citizens, in engaging development actors, the history of this engagement has been problematic. These contexts are not neutral. There is power imbalance, there is knowledge imbalance, there is resource imbalance. FPIC is an instrument and an aspiration to try and respond to these historical pathways that are flawed and to try and make an attempt to create space to account and deal with these power imbalances by bringing those who have no power and have not had a voice to have a voice. And so it speaks about provisioning of in full disclosure of issues under consideration so that the actors upon which the FPIC is applied can make informed choices, can question things from a point of information, and therefore can meaningfully engage and can meaningfully shape outputs based, based on the responses of the questions raised from a point of information of actors, particularly in our case, indigenous people, they can make an informed choice to join the project, to reorganize the project, and therefore consent 
to being part and parcel of this development endeavor. So yes, it's an instrument uh, to try and neutralize this power imbalance. And now, EFAD back in August released a report about FPIC. Why is this report and this consent so important to EFAD's mission, and how will it be implemented in EFAD's work? That's a good question. Uh, EFAD is a unique agency. First, in the level at which it works, EFAD focuses at rural communities. EFAD also works around a very pertinent uh, you know, food sovereignty, the right to food and survival. This is a space that indigenous people occupy. And so for EFAD to have an instrument like free and informed consent, it's a realization that the national space, the, the state as an instrument of delivering development goodies or development practice has not necessarily been equitable. And therefore, an instrument like free plan informed consent that mediates between the project proponents, implementers, beneficiaries, and actors is really, really, really a foundational tool for IFAD. It's also equally important, especially given that IFAD already has an indigenous people engagement policy. And so it's a movement from the policy, which is a principle of aspiration, to an operational instrument tool. You give indigenous people a mechanism to engage, to translate those safeguards within the policy into rights, into uh, benefits, into safeguards, uh, into opportunities of their daily livelihood. So I think it's the next level from the policy because it's towards operationalization of the policy principle. I am familiar with a project here in Kenya which uh, did a stakeholder screening on the landscape and found that indigenous people are present in the landscape and therefore included the support of implementation of free plan informed consent guideline uh, protocols in the entire project. FPIC is supposed to inform design, it's supposed to inform planning, it's supposed to inform implementation, monitoring, grievance redress, the entire spectrum of development practice. And so again, this is very encouraging uh, in the IFAD case because it's not only have an indigenous policy, but is increasingly channeling resources and embedding FPIC in projects, design and implementation where Indigenous peoples are found. EFAD's Indigenous Peoples Forum is coming up in February, as I'm sure you know. And the theme for this year's forum is climate leadership and community-based solutions. How does free prior and informed consent relate to this theme? And how do you think it will be included in discussions during this forum? If a free plan informed consent uh, is not taken as a standard practice and supported. The traditional knowledge may not come to inform climate action. These alternate visions and practices uh, that indigenous people have may not see the light of day, may not be part of the solution. Yet the highest concentration of biodiversity is in their landscape because of these knowledge and practices. And FPIC is a channel and an instrument through which these knowledges, these actions, these visions are brought to inform other actors and outcomes in climate action. So I would say free plan informed consent is very, very central because it's an instrument to enable self-determination, which is a central pillar of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. So it is at the heart of the forum discourses around climate because it's a way of enlivening self-determined development. 
Many thanks to Kimmerin, who took the time to speak with us. If you want to hear more from us, please tune in to any of our 40 podcasts and over 350 reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 39, we looked to the new year and IFAD's replenishment, and episode 38 was all about biodiversity. And next month's episode will focus on gender in honor of International Women's Day. Up next, we're talking to two indigenous chefs who are using food as a way to return to their roots. We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson here with Alison Lecce. Indigenous peoples' unique food systems are a core aspect of their communities and culture. Their rich cuisine is derived from the crops that have been used on their lands for centuries. I talked with two indigenous chefs from South Africa and the U.S. to learn more about each of their food systems. Mohadi Itswang is a chef from South Africa. Previously, she worked in media, but after losing her mother at a young age, she turned to cooking as a way to connect with her once more. She tells me a bit about her upbringing and her lifelong love for food. I grew up in not just a nuclear family, but a more wider family structure. So I grew up with my parents. I'm a Lobedu. The Lobedu people are an indigenous community which is ruled by um, the last matriarch here in South Africa called uh, Mujaji, Queen Mujaji. So we are Mujaji's people and part of our culture is um, most information or most learnings are passed on to the girl child, the first girl child. So I went to live with my grandmother so I could understand our ways. My grandmother um, was very, she, unlike my parents, was uneducated. She never went to school, so she couldn't read or write. But she was so educated in the ways of the world and in nature because she was a, she was an indigenous farmer, um, subsistence farmer. And why did you decide to become a chef? Well, <laughs> I think the profession chose me. My other grandmother, my mom's mom, um, she was very, very urban all the way. You know, she didn't have any rural roots because she grew up in Durban, which is the coast, and her parents um, were mixed race. So my grandmother's parents were Indian and, and Musotu. And every time going to visit her, for me, was always an adventure because she was so different from my other grandmother. For her, food wasn't just sustenance. Like, she played with food, she played with spices. So that kind of opened us all sorts of amazing things that we wouldn't otherwise be exposed to in the township. And she, because she was that person who was always cooking, my mom also inherited that side from her. So I then inherited from my mom. I was always a sous chef. I think I just fell in love with that. And what happened is when my mom passed on, I connected with her through cooking. Like I said, the profession chose me. It became a place where I healed. It became a place where I could connect with all my grandmothers. Um, so food became a connector for me. And I think that the love affair <laughs> happened there. And how would you say that your indigenous roots play into this and connect to your cooking? So my grandmother, the subsistence farmer, she taught me how to, to connect with food. So she farmed all the indigenous, indigenous foods that I didn't know about. She would plant these um, indigenous beans, uh, bambara nuts, or ditlo, as we call them, and, and she would make all sorts of things with those beans. She would sell them. And I saw how those beans became so critical to not just our family life in terms of food and health, 
but also to her financial life. So I knew that when I started cooking, I started using a lot of that a lot of that food because that's the food that I knew and that's the food that I had access to. But most importantly, when I also understood and under, and knew that food was so integral to our health and understanding what that food meant and what that food was, it was a no-brainer for me to, to talk about that food and actually be an advocate for that food. Also, growing up, I saw how our disconnect from food created diseases purely because we moved away from our food and we moved away from food that heals. For me, it became almost like my grandmother's voice saying, you need to go back there. You need to teach people how to go back. And that has been my journey. Across the ocean in the U.S., I spoke with another chef and advocate, Mariah Gladstone. Mariah is from the Blackfeet community in northern Montana. As well as being part of EFAD's Recipes for Change program, she also runs a show called Indigi Kitchen that teaches people how to cook indigenous foods. When I sat down with Mariah, she told me a bit about her choice to advocate for and teach people about indigenous cuisine. As a chef, why have you chosen to prioritize a return to this indigenous or pre-contact cuisine and these ingredients? And what are you hoping to teach people about this cuisine and your community? Uh, For a long time, colonial governments have targeted indigenous food systems in an effort to control us. For my people, that meant that bison were hunted almost to extinction in an effort to open up the plains for large-scale tillage. Unfortunately, what happened, almost all indigenous people in the United States became dependent on a system of government rations. We have generations that are not familiar with how to prepare our traditional foods. So I wanted to provide a platform to reteach some of that information so that we can reconnect people with that. The work to take away our ability to feed ourselves was so intentional. And so the work to restore it has to be really intentional too. There are a lot more benefits to restoring indigenous food systems. And so restoring indigenous food systems also replenishes biodiversity of landscape. Even restoring bison onto the soil immediately improves the biodiversity of the prairie life. And then of course, when you look at the nutritional benefits, you know, looking at less processed foods, things that don't have to travel long distances that we're able to obtain locally, all of that is super essential to reducing the rate of diabetes in our community, reducing obesity, malnutrition, all of these things that we're combating. And, you know, our our traditional foods are just delicious. And I think that that should be shared too. Last week, I was talking to this indigenous chef from South Africa. And something that I found really interesting is she was talking about maize, which is a very popular crop in Africa now, but it doesn't fit into traditional indigenous crops and cuisine. So I know that in North America, maize is a staple ingredient. And I know it's known as one of the three sisters. Can you just explain what the three sisters are and how you guys use them and why they're so important to your culture. I'm fortunate that while I'm Blackfeet, my mom is Cherokee, so I I have two different nations in my heritage. Um, And for the Cherokee people, they were farmers and they would plant a variety of different foods, but one of the most profound combinations of those foods was actually a polyculture system of planting that involved planting maize, beans, and squash together. 
maize or corn grows straight up and acts as a support system or a trellis for beans. Beans are, of course, a legume, and they pull the nitrogen from the air and put it back into the soil where the maize and the squash can use it as a nutrient. They're heavy feeders, and so they need that nutrient to be replenished. And then squash, like pumpkins or zucchini, they grow in combination with these other two, and they spread out on the ground. They help prevent uh, water from evaporating off of the soil. They help prevent sunlight from reaching the soil so that weeds competition is not allowed to grow in the same places. You know, like siblings, they are very different, but they work together. They play to each other's strengths and weaknesses, and they also provide us for a metaphor for taking care of ourselves in our daily lives. How do we can support each other? Despite the distance between them, it's clear that Mariah and Mohadi share a love for food and education. Likewise, they had similar messages for world leaders who will be addressing indigenous issues at the forum next month. I would love to see a larger discussion of indigenous empowerment for restoration of our food systems, just because I think that there is a broad realization now that indigenous people's food systems, our traditional foods, our local foods need to be restored, and, but that work needs to be indigenous-led. Native people have the tools to feed our communities, to nurture the soil, and to take care of the biodiversity, the ecological health, the water, the air, all of these factors. And the discussions need to be how to restore more of that power for Indigenous people to take the wheel on that. Not looking for Indigenous people to save the day without resources. I think it should be how do we direct resources towards these communities that have been successfully caretaking the landscapes for thousands of years. We have the empirical evidence, and I think it's just a matter of how we switch resources and and help restore some of that. For me, the indigenous food system is key um, because indigenous people, as you know, are really the guardians of, of Mother Earth. We need to support those people. We need to support indigenous farmers that are still growing that food, that are still storing the seed, that are still keeping that culture alive. The governments need to make land accessible to those people. A lot of farmers here in South Africa who are growing the indigenous crops uh, have got no land. We struggle. They struggle with land. Um, They struggle with land issues. And that alone creates a break because now if all the land is used for commercial farming, whatever little land is left is what the indigenous people are using. And if they're not supported, they're not going to be able to, to provide, to provide that indigenous, those indigenous crops that people need. So if I'm, if for instance, I'm a chef and I'm talking about food security, I'm talking about how we must include indigenous ingredients in our, on our plates every day. People always ask me, where do I get this, the produce from? Because I can't get it in the stores, purely because the big commercial farmers are not farming that. So what ends up happening is that there's a big divide between uh, what the market wants and what the farmers are able to produce and supply. If they're supported and they're given land or they're even given subsidies to help them um, grow things like sorghum, which is an incredible, incredible grain, 
So for us, I, what I'd like um, all leaders is to, to really put the indigenous, indigenous food systems um, on a pedestal for once and really look at it and really support it because that's, that's where our healing is going to come from. You know, if we're in touch with nature, if we're growing um, food that is, that is in harmony with nature, right? Here in South Africa, we suffer from a lot of drought. Um, there's not enough water to sustain just a lot of the crops that we have here. But the indigenous crops grow anyway, with or without water. So there, again, there, there, there is our, our solution right there. So it's, you know, for, for, for the leaders to really look at the indigenous food system as a solution to climate change. Thanks to Mahadi and Mariah for their comments. You'll find out more about Mariah on her Recipe for Change chef page, www.ifad.org forward slash recipes for change. And of course, also at www.indigikitchen.com. Stick around to hear more from Ilaria Fermian about what we can expect at the Indigenous Peoples Forum held this February here at IFAD. Now we turn to an activist in Nicaragua to learn about the work she's doing in her community from gender equality to land rights. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lachi in the studio with Brian Thompson. Mina Cunningham is an indigenous leader and activist in Nicaragua. Her work focuses mainly on establishing an autonomous region between Honduras and Nicaragua. She also advocates for gender equality and education within her community and works at a global level to establish an international standard of human rights. I sat down with Myrna to learn about her activism and the advice she has for young people and outsiders in supporting her cause. She starts by telling me a bit about her community. I was born in the Wanki River. This is a, a river that borders Honduras and Nicaragua. So it was something that we call the Mosquito Coast. So the culture is related with water but it's also a culture where there's a lot of spirits, protector spirits. I would say it's a, it's a, an area in which that relationship also involves spirituality and spiritual beings that are the protectors of the natural resources. What are some of the most important issues that you've noticed in your community over the years? The First thing that is the way in which times and climate has changed. The river traditionally flooded every year. So we knew the area would be flooded. So people were able to prepare. But now with the climate changes, the floods have increased. So they, the communities are facing long months of flood. And this really affects not only their possibility to plant and prepare, but also their possibility to find food during those months. So I think it's safe to say that you've been pretty active in advocating for Indigenous communities for years now. So how have you noticed this activism, the issues that are coming up? How have you noticed all of this evolve over the years? say we are very we are very appreciative of the changes that we have seen 
in the establishment of standards that recognizes collective rights of indigenous peoples, the increase of spaces of participation in the discussion of issues that regards indigenous peoples. But we, we are still aware that there are areas in the world, countries that do not recognize the existence of indigenous peoples. Or in some cases, they recognize that they exist. They adhere to the standards, but there's still a big gap between recognition and real implementation of the rights of indigenous peoples. How does it make you feel to see these youth indigenous leaders and activists fighting for the same rights you've been fighting for? When you, when you plant something during the youth, that is what you will be able to harvest in the rest of your life. We are harvesting, my generation is harvesting what we were able to do during our youth. And one of the main elements of indigenous people's resilience is the capacity of intergenerational transmission of knowledge. And when I see uh, the activism of the youth, it just make me ratify that practice of indigenous peoples. It makes me appreciate that we're still doing it. So my main message for the youth is uh, continue listening to the elders. Continue remembering that what you are able to do now, the spaces that you have gained now, is because there are ancestors that were there building, opening those windows and those opportunities. So remember their lessons. Remember your commitment with their knowledge. Remember your commitment with their wisdom and their values. And be faithful to your people. You are not there only as an individual. You are there because you belong to peoples that have fought for decades, for centuries, to exercise their rights. What topics and issues would you like to see prioritized by EFAD experts and EFAD leaders at this forum? The forum at EFAD is an ongoing practice that ensures this dialogue between EFAD governments and indigenous peoples. So I think we have grown in this relationship enough to move to another level of participation and to ensure indigenous participants in the discussions of the executive board at IFAD. Of course, the forum will be an important opportunity to discuss the main theme that we have decided that is indigenous people's leadership in to face climate change. Because we do believe that indigenous peoples have proven that they have knowledge, they have management practices. This intrinsic relationship with Mother Earth is something that we can teach to other cultures. And this is what we expect also 
to discuss during the forum in February. How can regular people, how can people like me, people not associated with the UN system and seeing these issues every day, how can regular people learn more about Indigenous issues and be better allies for Indigenous communities? Some friends would say, just practice radical listening. <laughs> they say, just listen. The first place is just listening. Listen without prejudice, without considering the stereotypes that you have learned during your life. Just listen to indigenous peoples and begin to appreciate what they're saying. You may change your pattern of life related with nature, related with consumption, related with a lot of negative practices that you have learned during your life. And that will also help nurture that new type of relationship that we wish to build between humans and Mother Earth. If we protect Mother Earth, we have the possibilities to survive as human beings. That was Mina Cunningham, an activist from Nicaragua. Mina is part of IFAD's Indigenous Peoples Steering Committee and will be a guest at the Indigenous Peoples Forum in February. Up next, we hear from our Goodwill Ambassador, Sabrina Alba. We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce here with Brian Thompson. Back at the UN's Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, IFAD's Goodwill Ambassador Sabrina Elba was out spreading the word of adapt or starve. Harsh words, maybe, but she was hopeful for the future. I asked her how things were going. Well, today has been great. <laughs> we're, we're feeling quite energized about a lot of the traction that IFAD's been getting and the conversations and rooms we've been able to get into. But as a whole, because the situation is so dire and, you know, climate change is happening now and food security systems are at risk now, uh, overall, you know, I'm feeling a bit impatient. Maybe that's the right word. Because we make all these plans, we sit in rooms, we negotiate, we talk, we have bilaterals, but I really want to see action. Now is the time to act. We're done planning and done conversating. We brought the issues that we can to the forefront and at the desks of the people who need them. So what I'd love to see now is funding put out, the funding that was already committed, the 100 billion per year, in a meaningful way. And we saw at last COP that the conversation between adaptation and mitigation has finally become one that makes sense. So at least 50% of that to go to adaptation. Is, is there anything in particular about the situation smallholder farmers are facing? How has it changed in the last 12 months um, in, in what you've seen in your missions with IFAD? It's literally become adapt or starve. I mean, it's just conflict on climate, on struggle. I mean, it's just one thing after the other for the most vulnerable areas. And it's such a shame because as we know, they do the least to contribute. And while it is on Europe's doorstep, it's on the Global North's doorstep, we've seen droughts, we've seen heat waves, the way it's hitting people in rural areas is so much more catastrophic. You have locusts, you have swarms, you have diseases, you have a lack of fertilizer from wars that they have nothing to do with. So it's just, it's one that is needs urgent attention. Um, I think people are facing a harsh reality day to day that we're quite privileged in the global north to not have to face. Uh, but I am also hopeful because what I have seen through EFAD is that the programs are there. 
and the programs work. And that's enough to create quite a bit of hope, I think. So it's just a matter of getting the funding. And just as a last question, sort of burrowing down a little bit on Somalia, on, on, on your home country, how is the situation there? What do people need to do to, 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 to help improve things in, in your eyes? Heads need to turn in Somalia's direction now because what's happening there is it's devastating. They might go into a famine. It's already worse than 2011. We've seen this happen again and again. But what I hope it does do is show people that we need long-term solutions rather than just short-term funding like aid because we'll just go through it again. And actually, it's going to cost more to just do it this way. 1.7% of climate financing actually goes to rural people. That's so unjust, especially when they feed so much of the world. I hope that people see what's happening in Somalia. Turn on your TV, share the news, and 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 hopefully it'll act at least as a as a flag for rural people because it's just so important. That was EFAD's Goodwill Ambassador Sabrina Dower Elba. Up next, more from the climate frontier as Kasa Alam brings us another report from Bangladesh. A recent World Bank report estimates that by 2050, almost half of the internal climate migrants for the entire South Asia region will be from Bangladesh. This translates to nearly 20 million people being forced to relocate. And for many of them, this isn't just about finding a new home, but even finding new land to build it on. Sea level rise and coastal erosion are eating up the country's coastline at rates as high as one kilometer per year, taking with it mosques, schools, roads, and homes. But the currents in the Bay of Bengal and the silt carried by the rivers which flow into it can give rise to new lands or chars, large stretches of mud which emerge just a few feet from seawater. As we hear from environment journalist Casa Alam, if consolidated with the right development actions, chars can become inhabitable islands in their own right. A country losing its coastline fast. This is already gone in the last six months. Like, that's actually really shocked me. But are newly forming islands in the Bay of Bengal <laughs> the answer? Uh, I'm loving this. This is... Uh, I feel really privileged to be on new land. This is Bangladesh, the climate front line. <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> this is newly formed land. This is amazing. We are literally out in the middle of nothing. There's nothing here. But two, three years ago, this started to form. And now they are planting mangrove trees here. And I love the feeling of the... Uh, of the sediment on my feet. Hello, Mr. How do you feel? Uh, I'm loving this. This is a. Uh, I feel really privileged to be on new land. Does that make any sense? This is something that is very untouched. Look at us now here. Look at my big ugly feet ruining all the uh, the new land. No, I love it. This is this is amazing. Where we are, what we can see, it's just so vast. Farid is in charge of trying to get this and many other islands safe for people to live on. To do that, they're planting mangrove trees that bind the soil together. Making it solid is one way to ensure that it lasts in the future. But now, though, it's still a work in progress. 
So tell me a little bit about what you guys have been doing today. You've got some people here, haven't you? Uh, this is uh, water before only three years. Yeah. This was uh, really sea. Eh. You guys eh. can't see this right now, eh. but the cameraman is also going in deep like this, like we are, finding it incredibly difficult to move. Look at that. That's how deep it is. Ugh. I think we've got to go that way. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. And uh, we are planting uh, Kaura seedlings. Yeah. 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 And uh, after uh, 20 years, yeah. this will be stable and suitable for habitat. And so this is 250 hectares. Yeah. How big is that? Is that an average size? Is this a big one in comparison to the others? Is this a small one? No, no. Uh, this is a small one. This is a small, small one. one. And there are uh, many chores. Uh, in a large size in any other uh, areas. So how long do we expect this to like last for? If now that this is here, is this gonna be here forever? Or do you think this is gonna, like in 50 years or so, be destroyed? Or do we just not know yet? It is forever. Forever. Uh, forever. So this is new land forming. Casa Alam is literally our newly formed land where someone in 25 to 30 years will live. That is a huge pleasure. Let's get to do some planting, because that's what I'm here to do today. Help these boys, not that they need it, and not that I'll be much help, but help them put some of these in, so that in 20, 30 years time, this is gonna be somewhere that's really stable, and people will be able to live here. What a job. So each one of these, each, each one of these is, is a seedling? Yeah. What are we doing, what are we putting it? Here. Here? These. Okay. Yeah, you, you put this here. I told you, you'd regret me. Yeah. In 20 years time, this will be the one that's broken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All done. Right, and then we move the rope forward. Yeah. Okay, and then we plant another one. So how big are these gonna get? 15 meters. 15 meters. The trees will serve another purpose as well. The height of them will mean they should act as natural wave breakers, so cyclones approaching the mainland can be slowed down. Yeah. Nice. Right, the next one, yeah? So that's mine there. There, let's put it in. <clears throat> And I suppose as well, because we're planting these, when these are mature, it's actually going to attract more wildlife, birds to the area, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that will help the ecosystem. Thank you very much uh, for uh, helping me. Yeah. And you are not uh, so perfect man for planting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And please uh, have a cup of tea. Okay. All right. Well, to be fair, if you have a look at my line, it's all wonky, and then there's his straight, so... Yeah, maybe I should stick to the day job, leave this to the experts, and do what I do best, which is go have a cup of tea. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Before leaving, I need a moment to take all of this in. This is probably the highlight of my trip, and gives me hope for the future. They're gonna be planting these mangrove trees because it will stabilize this whole chore. It will also act as a pro, um, protection against the village. And they've got the foresight because they're already talking about settling people here, but in 20, 30 years. So this is something that is a longer term project to help uh, the country and also use this space. I feel really, really like blessed. I know it sounds silly, it's so calm and I'm just jabbering away, ruining it, but not many people get to experience something like this and we are today. So that is, it's pretty amazing. Look how deep my foot goes, incredible. But the optimism doesn't last long. As I return to the mainland, I notice how jagged and damaged the coastline really is. 
There are trees, homes and lives, all destroyed along the edge for everyone to see. According to model study uh, and present bank line, we ha I have marked this one. This one? This one line is present bank line. And this is Janata Bazaar uh, Cyclone Shelter, Morjit Market Cyclone Shelter, and also South Adashogram Cyclone Shelter. These are all lost. You're telling me that this is all going to be lost within a year? These are uh, lost uh, in six months back. Six months? Six months back. This is all going to be gone in six months? No, this is already, already gone. Already, they're already gone. This is already gone in the last mm. six months? And and how much do you expect to lose by the end of this year? That is 550 meters in uh, 12 months. Five, so this is going to be and another further half a kilometer back? Half a kilometer inside. I look around at the faces of the people who live here. I can't imagine what it must be like for them to know that the land under their feet is slowly eroding away. But it is. That's the reality. A tree is being lost to coastal erosion right in front of our eyes. Mr. Kareem was saying that this time last year, about six months ago, actually, there was stuff here before, like a, like a mosque, like a cyclone shelter, like an office, that was all there, but now it's gone. And we've got all these people here who are probably gonna, some of them are gonna lose their houses by the end of this year, because 26,000 people lose their homes from this area every single year. That's around 5,000 households. It's all because of coastal erosion that is happening around here. We saw over there the creation and we saw new hope, new lands that are being created to settle people in about 20, 30 years, which is hopeful and it's fascinating, it's brilliant. But equally, the other side to that is what is happening here, which is that people are losing their homes right now, not in 20 years, not in 30 years, but right now. And that is something that we all really need to think about. That was Kasa Alam reporting from Bangladesh. If you want to know more about his reports on IFAD projects and his work in general, you can check his YouTube channel, Casa Vision. That's Q-A-S-A Vision. Stick around to hear once more from our Indigenous People Specialist, Ilaria Fermian, with an update on the forum. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian here with Alison. The Indigenous Peoples Forum will take place at IFAD on the 9th, 10th, and 13th of February. I asked Ilaria what we can expect at the forum. The theme of this year's IP Forum is Indigenous Peoples Climate Leadership, Community-Based Solutions to Enhance Resilience and Biodiversity. So I'm curious to hear a bit more about this. How is this topic chosen and why? First of all, indigenous peoples and local forest communities have been actually left out of decision-making processes for far too long. And time and time again, we have seen leaders publicly demanding to be recognized and be respected as rightful owners of forests. Recently, there has been a study by Rainforest Foundation Norway that showed that uh, indigenous peoples and also local communities tenure and forest management in the study was focused only on tropical countries, but 
As received a very small share of international donor funding over the last 10 years, something like 270 million per year on average. And this is basically equivalent to less than 1% of the ODA for climate change mitigation and adaptation over the same period. So at COP26, uh, 1.7 billion of funding has been pledged to indigenous peoples and local communities in recognition of their role. And uh, we think, at IFAD, we think we are really facing a historic moment, in a sense, a paradigm shift whereby indigenous peoples, who are the stewards of the nature, are guiding us on how to relearn and rethink our relationship with nature. And indigenous peoples' climate leadership, as in the title of the forum, is really seeking to highlight this approach. What are some of the topics and issues that will be discussed and prioritized? Uh, well, the forum has uh, um, held uh, 14 sub-regional and regional consultation meetings in preparation for the global meeting that will take place in February. So in this consultation, uh, there were more than 300 indigenous people's representatives. Some of the key lessons that came out during uh, this consultation include the recognition that indigenous leadership is tied to indigenous way of knowing and of being. So to a deep and intimate relationship with the land, to the life in community, a resilient and creative spirit. This leadership is also tied to indigenous land and territorial security. So this will definitely be an issue that will be discussed. Also, another topic that um, was pointed out is the important role of women as knowledge bearers and transmitters and as anchors and guardians of community life and well-being. And uh, equally, the important role of uh, young people, not, not only because of their link to the future, but also as source of, uh, of the present energy. Who will be some of the main actors in this forum, both on the Indigenous people side and on EFAT side? Well, the forum is a space where IFAD staff, governments, indigenous people sit at the table and exchange experiences and suggestions. So more than talking about the main actors, I would say that the key element of the forum is the dialogue and actually the opportunity to listen, listen and to learn from indigenous people's perspectives. There will be, however, more than 40 representatives of indigenous peoples and also IFAD staff that has been already very much involved during the, the consultation uh, process. And uh, But still, I really would like to, to remember that the forum, the remind that the forum is a permanent platform and not only an event. So the, the sixth meeting is a milestone of a broader and constant uh, process that seeks uh, for horizontal engagement uh, between IFAD and indigenous peoples. So now, what results are you hoping to see coming out of this forum? Well, first of all, uh, we are hoping to have a very rich discussion. It will last three days. After the dialogues, the forum will emit the synthesis of deliberation that will be read during the governing council for informing the governors. In addition, we will also have regional sessions that will prepare regional action plans to guide IFAD's engagement in the region for the next two years. And uh, we highly count with the support uh, of uh, IFAD's uh, um, Indigenous Peoples Regional Focal Point and all uh, regional staff. So it really seems like the Indigenous Peoples team and IFAD has been doing a lot of work to prep, not only just for the forum as an event, but 
for the continuation of this involvement. You know, after these consultation meetings and ahead of this forum, how do you feel about EFAD's involvement with indigenous communities? During the regional consultations, is uh, the, we really felt a recognition of EFAD as a valued partner and the leader in engaging with indigenous peoples. So its commitment to indigenous participation and the approach to consulting with them through the Indigenous Peoples Forum and also IFA's direct investment through the EPAF are really valued. So it was really nice to see IFA recognized as a strategic partner who can play an advocacy role in creating this space for a dialogue between indigenous peoples, so states and other international organizations. Thanks to Ilaria for an update on the forum. And that brings us to the end of episode 40. We're 40, I know, who can believe it? Um, anyway, many thanks to our fabulous producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efad.org forward slash podcasts. Next month's episode will be all about gender. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of February with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Alison Lecce, and the team here at EFAD. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.